it is my solace it's my church it's my it's my you know to get out on the bike or to go for a run or a walk you know that is what keeps me sane welcome to the case for conservation podcast i'm your host andre modo this podcast is aimed at exploring and sometimes questioning conventional wisdom in the conservation of nature and biodiversity and the purpose of that is to build a more robust and credible case for conservation. Today's episode is slightly unusual, though. Stephen Lowe is one of the most remarkable people I know. He's very easy to spot in a crowd because he's a head taller than anyone around him, and he typically wears a naughty grin on his face. He's without a doubt the most athletic and outdoorsy person I know, despite the fact that he has limited use of one arm after a cycling accident as a teenager. But perhaps most of all, it's Steve's enthusiasm for life and for nature that I find noteworthy and worth sharing. So we talk about where enthusiasm comes from, among other things. You can see the rest of the topics on the subject list in the podcast description. Steve is now a high school science teacher in the UK. He started his career in cardiovascular cell biology after getting his PhD in that subject. In between those two mini careers, he spent more than 10 years studying and working in conservation biology, mostly in South Africa. That's where we met in 2004, doing our MSc together in that subject. I started off our discussion asking him how he got involved in cardiovascular research and why he decided to return to university to change direction towards conservation. When I went into to study biology at uni, it was it was out of a passion really for ecological issues. Mm. And then I remember doing courses in ecology and not really realizing at the time that ecology was really kind of emerging as a science. You know, the, the techniques that were being honed at the time to make it a more rigorous science were just sort of really growing. There were obviously some some really great ecologists out there, but in terms of the field of ecology and how, you know, the sort of statistical analyses and and collection methods, etc., were, were were certainly you know developing. And um, I just remember being a little bit frustrated about the fact that it didn't seem a very rigorous science to me. And and actually, I think that was more my lack of imagination and sort of seeing where this was going rather than my my lecturers who I think were probably pretty good actually anyway I, I just remember feeling frustrated yet there was also this this hugely growing field of molecular biology and I just remember being blown away about what was going on almost like the ecology of the cell like what was going on inside a cell seemed as fascinating as what was going on outside the cell mm -hmm. and um, and I just remember being completely taken with that and and also there was huge amount of opportunity in that far more so than in, in ecology at that time so um I, I remember just sort of almost switching my allegiance to physiology and the molecular biology side of things and that's where my interest took me it doesn't mean that i wasn't no longer interested in the ecological side of it because i always always was a sort of birder and, and what have you 
so then I was I, I after university I really wanted to do uh, a science-based project I wanted to do a research-based project more because I had that was the one thing I'd managed to do I wasn't a great student it was only at university that I sort of really realized what study was and I realized that I really wanted to do this sort of academia and so I, I sort of did a shotgun approach to applying for masters and PhDs and most of those were in sort of molecular side of things and from not having any offers I got a few offers um, all at once and then one of them was funded by the British Heart Foundation and it was looking at cloning and characterizing genes involved in the cardiovascular system. It looked absolutely fascinating and it is absolutely fascinating and it is you know important work but I think it was while I was doing that that it kind of dawned on me that yes of course there are people who suffer from heart problems that are congenital or you know they're born with or that they develop through all sorts of reasons yeah but primarily heart disease is a lifestyle disease and it just made me think that actually uh, and that doesn't mean it's it's not then worth studying but it made me realize that actually maybe public medicine is more important there sort of uh, education about you know what's healthy living that would make a much bigger impact than than funding a phd student to look at a potential drug target because that's what i really realized would be the application of my research obviously doing basic research is doing science for science sake is always a fascinating and interesting thing to do but i think i wanted to do something that actually had some kind of social impact and it just it just felt like actually we we spend a huge amount of time and resources and justify it in terms of that it's going to be good for someone's health and actually if we thought about efficiently putting our time and resources actually i think you know so many of the diseases that particularly the western world is stricken with are not communicable diseases although i'm talking about in the in the middle of a pandemic that yeah, sounds yeah. like a new point but actually i think it's still very it much still is, that, yeah, yeah yeah most people are dying from from cancer heart disease mm. and a lot of those not certainly not all but a lot of those are due to lifestyle and it just sort of made me think how we where we put our where we put our money and what the why we do that it, it almost struck me now this is a weird analogy and i don't know if this is going to work but it's almost like, why is it that we spend so much money advertising burgers, but yet we don't spend much money advertising bananas? You can develop a burger and you can market it and advertise it and sell it, you know, and make, and make a lot of money out of it. Whereas, you know, maybe that's not the case with bananas. And that might be a terrible analogy, but it almost seems like we can put our money into something we can research it we can develop a drug we can market it we can make money out of it and therefore that's why we do it rather than actually that's the best thing for either humankind or or, or the world at large but then then after my phd I, I worked in edinburgh and then i then i i got i managed to get a job in south africa which is this amazing 10-year period of my life and i i went out there on i think it was a year maybe two year contract working on molecular biology again on program cell death which is like really important issue but i was also involved in going walking for the botany department the zoology department these fascinating people you go walking in the field with and they'd tell you about what was happening with the rivers and how you know basically this 
beautiful, amazing, super biodiverse place in, in this little corner of Southern Africa was being completely hammered. And there was not really a great reason why we could do it. There were, there were definitely other ways of managing the situation and there were potential solutions, but there were very few people really working on it given the scale of the problem. And also there was so much that wasn't known before I did the master and what made me want to do the masters, I, I remember walking into the freshwater research unit, which was headed by an amazing lady called Professor Jenny Day, and meeting some of her students and basically just knocking on the door and saying, look, there's this issue with these invasive fish and they're wiping out all these native fish. People have been telling me about it, and but I can't seem to find anyone to explain why, why this is happening and who's working on it. And I just remember this guy shaking my hand and he said, welcome to the freshwater research unit. And it was just this tiny unit of really dedicated, really interesting people who were tackling these issues that to me it seemed of like paramount importance. It was like, no one's there to help the fish. You know, no one's mm -hmm. help. These, they've been evolving there for millions of years and we're about to go extinct. And I just thought, actually, this is what I want to work in. So it's very much a personal choice. And, you know, by no means do I think that working on, you know, molecular issues is not really important and we shouldn't be doing that. But just for me personally, conservation, is it's something that we choices that we are making as humans that are impacting the earth and and, and the ecology of the earth and of course the ecology of the earth will be here long after we are here and it will still be exist but it just felt to me that we need to understand better how we're impacting the planet around us and we need to make better choices about how can we conserve what we've got around us mm. or at least conserve the processes that occur around us and, and allow nature to, to to have space to to do its thing mm. and to support us because we we rely on all those services that it provides so yeah that was my kind of entry point into conservation something which i thought would be quite interesting to talk to you about uh, you know, there are lots of people out there who are better placed than we are to talk about this. But just kind of from a, a general viewpoint, I was kind of wondering, like, where you see biodiversity and, and conservation in the bigger scheme of things, you know, like with, with all the challenges that humankind faces, it can be environmental, developmental, economic, you know, we've got a whole list of things, right? Yeah. Just a very quick anecdote, so I can repeat the question if yeah. I get too far from it, but uh, Georgina Mace, the conservation biologist, she died very recently, actually. Someone asked her where she thought biodiversity belonged in, in relation to climate change. And she said that she thought that biodiversity was important, but not as important as, uh, as climate. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult to divorce the sort of passion I feel for, you know, almost like I'm a bit of a tree hugger. You know, I, I, I will I will literally I'll walk past a big beach. I'll be on a walk and I'll see a, a big beech tree. You know, we might get a 35 or even at the outside 40 meter beech tree just going straight up with the most gorgeous branches. And I, I just can't help it. I have to give it a hug, you know, and look up and just feel the cool dappled leaves on me, you know, or just looking at dragonflies and just being blown away how they can you know in in a, in a millisecond you know completely reverse direction yeah, and, and, and right and right angles. yeah yeah it was just crazy just blows my mind so 
you know, it's very personal. Biodiversity means so, so much to me. Having that, you know, looking at leaves and seeing them as solar panels rather than just these sort of flat green things, you know, thinking about what's going on all around you, this sort of living, breathing organism, almost like this sort of Gaia idea of, you know, this living, breathing earth. And and it's really difficult to separate the two because climate is obviously it's a it's an abiotic physical thing Mm -hmm. but it's driven on a a local and a global level by biodiversity um, and biodiversity is driven by it Mm -hmm. so um you know the transpiration rate in of of plants you know over a rainforest or the you know the, the huge production of of oxygen by phytoplankton in the ocean um there's there's too much feedback between the two to to separate them. Mm-hmm. So I see I see them as 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 intimately intertwined, and they're both equally important, really. Mm-hmm. But yes, of course, a changing climate is going to drive species extinction. On the flip side of that, is going to uh, create opportunities for others. I think a big one, and I remember us discussing it as well, was is this concept of biological homogenization. My understanding is we live in a time that's actually really biodiverse. Um, certainly, you know, if you, you know, going well, even now, but certainly going back a few hundred years or a few thousand years, we're living in a very biodiverse time. And, and you know, to preserve the processes that allow that biodiversity to exist, you know, in our lifetime, there will be several species or sub subspecies of rhino um, and perhaps even even elephants god forbid but even elephants will be will be telling our kids well actually on our watch we let them go mm-hmm. you know and you can see you know they'll be like alongside the dinosaurs we'll be looking at them saying these once roamed the earth that to me is uh, it's almost unforgivable yeah there's a kind of, I think it's a Buddhist, is it a Buddhist quote? I don't know. I'm just going to completely misquote things. There's something that says there's there's no good or bad. There's only consequences. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we need to bear that in mind as well. So from an objective standpoint, we are nature. So if you were, an, you know, an alien looking down, looking at the world in maybe in a speeded up <laughs> history of the earth, but, um, you know, if you were looking at us, it's we're just another species that's having Im- big, big impact on the planet. You know, uh, ants have a huge impact on the planet. Worms have a huge impact on the planet. You know, the first photosynthesizing cyanobacteria, you know, that introduced oxygen into the atmosphere, wiped out the anaerobic competitors, you know, in the what they call the what is it they call the is it the great oxidation event? I can't remember the name, but over you know, millions of years where yeah. oxygen increased and basically all the poor anaerobic bacteria were consigned to muddy pools or the insides yeah. of our guts. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so um, this is part of change. So is it good? Is it bad? No, but there's a consequence to it. And do we want to? Can we look at ourselves as a species where we have so much power? It's people who are driving conservation problems it's people who are going to find the solutions and it's people who are going to be affected by those conservation decisions so um yeah it's all about people it's all about choices and so we have that choice it's actually quite difficult to separate the ethical and the practical considerations here so you actually started off talking 
more about the ethical considerations or your point of view sounded like more of an ethical point of view, you know, the responsibility for for looking after life on earth. But then that quote that you mentioned was really all about the consequences. Mm. The moral argument is a subjective one. And so therefore it becomes about your moral position almost against somebody else's who they might say, yeah, of course we don't want to lose this species, but you know, actually in the balance, we've got, we've got to use this, we want to use this resource mm -hmm. because, because we need it. It's very difficult to tell people what they need or what they don't need. I think you do have to make the case on many levels, you know, so you can, you can make it on a moral level and be totally open about that. We don't want to lose this species because we don't want to lose it because we love this species. You know, it's fine to say that and and put forward the, the moral argument for trying to avoid any species extinction mm -hmm. um, or us humans being the main driver of that extinction. But being able to say, actually, this species is also important for an ecosystem that supplies these services and without which people are going to you know lose out and there's this economic shortfall of course the, the the problem the problem with that of course it can become just reductionist to the point where only those species or those systems that can provide us with some tangible economic benefit are the ones worth keeping and mm -hmm. that's not that 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 also has a you know is morally problematic mm -hmm especially because we actually don't know what what benefit they could accrue to us um in the future right yeah i guess that my my jaded view is that as conservationists we assume that win-win scenarios are always possible and mm -hmm. they're they're almost never possible you know there's always some trade-off even if it's a small one there's always some level of of trade-off in terms of what in terms of what i'm saying there's 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 no good or bad only consequences there's a crossover there, isn't there? So that the, the trade-off is the consequences. You can either have this or this. You you can't have both. So what makes it especially complex is that the trade-off is um, it's not just spatial; it's temporal as well. You know, the the uh, the benefit that you get from destruction of nature is usually a relatively short-term one, and yeah. the benefit of conserving nature is is a, a more long-term one. That's also what I've just said now is the kind of generic statement that I try to avoid making these days, but it is true to some extent, I think. I No, I think it's true in many extents. And, and you know, the, the one that really strikes home, there's lots of images I have in my head, but a really big one is uh, in the Eastern Cape around Grahamstown and, and beyond. You know, I used to mountain bike through there, as did you. And you get fields of just, of just scrubland. And you have a look and you just see it's sort of these old woody pineapple fields. And they've been uh, there. They've been there for like, you know, a couple of decades now. These fields that are kind of eff effectively good for nothing. They're not, they, they're not economically productive. They're in terms of biodiversity, they're, they're you know, wastelands. pretty rubbish. Yeah, yeah wastelands. And, and yet what they were not that long ago was that amazing um, subtropical thicket. Mm. And this hugely diverse, massive carbon capture, supporting endemic species being chopped down to plant pineapples. Now, it's really difficult to argue against that because it's providing food, it's providing employment for local people in an area where there's real poverty and also where there's 
There's a history of discrimination against people of colour who were going to be benefiting from those jobs. And so there's, there's lots of seemingly good things. But of course, what happened was is that the market shifted and it became cheaper to grow pineapple somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so for, a, I don't know how long it was, but it was less than even a couple of decades of temporary economic benefit for people. Mm-hmm. And then those jobs are now gone and you're left with a completely trashed environment. And my understanding is that ecosystem doesn't recover particularly quickly due yeah. to the, the nature of the biology of it. And so, you know, it would require a huge restoration effort to get it back to where it was. And, you know, a country like South Africa struggles to find the finances to do that. And, you know, these, these sort of how, how do we avoid that kind of environmental destruction for really no social benefit? Um, some kind of strategic planning on behalf of, of, of governments is would, would go a long way to facilitating that. But, but of yeah. course, governments work on five-year terms in office, etc. So if you can satisfy the, your job figures in the short yeah. term, then you're probably going to do that. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. we're talking about things that lots of people have thought about before, but it is, it, I suppose it does beg the question of, in terms of, conservation you know looking for win-win situations are there any in southeast england right where i'm now sitting we've got a burgeoning population and there's not enough housing stock and we live in an area around london it's called the green belt and although obviously we've been trashing our biodiversity for far longer than even you know southern africa has but, but we do have some really nice little nuggets of albeit you know, managed, there's nothing pristine about our biodiversity, but some really beautiful, relatively high biodiversity areas, such as chalk streams and um, some nice, uh, really nice ancient deciduous woodland, etc. But there are, it's interspersed with farmland and golf courses and various other things of relatively low biodiversity areas. But nevertheless, there's a restriction on planning, but we need to build houses. We need to build houses. There's just no getting away from it. And so uh, where we where do we build those houses? Well, what happens is, is that they find an area and they say, okay, we're going to build a thousand houses here. And then everyone complains, of course. And then they go, then there's a bit of a barter and they say, okay, right, we'll only build 500 houses. But what they don't do is consider what the social amenities are that are needed to support that. They don't consider what the impacts on the environment are in terms of runoff into our chalk streams or the abstraction from the chalk streams for the water that's required for those people or even things like infrastructure, what have you. You know, we're, this is a developed, supposedly developed nation that can't even get its act together with town planning. But the thing that strikes me most is that, okay, a lot of people complain about the fact that we might plow up a golf course and knock down a few trees, right, Uh, as well in the process. And I I think, yeah, I don't want them to chop any trees down to build any houses, but that might happen. But wait a minute. When you build a development of a thousand houses, there's a huge amount of money to be made by somebody normally the developers right and a lot of that will also go to local government there's a lot of money going around a tiny amount of that could go to saying you know what we're not only going to just replace the biodiversity these few trees that we've chopped down this area of trees or whatever we're actually going to 
Okay, ancient woodland, you know, that's a different that's a different deal. You know, you can't just replace ancient woodland. But what we're gonna do is development can be seen as an opportunity to enhance nature in the local area. Yeah, not just like plant some sicker spruce up in Scotland and say, yes, we've planted an extra thousand trees. You know, it can it it could actually work. But the thing is is that it's never it's not in the national conversation it's not everyone just complains about building houses it's either you build houses or you don't build houses it's not mm -hmm. like well what's the opportunity here and i think it's about i think so much of conservation should be finding out what's the opportunity yeah in in a development and and then and then saying okay your profit margin might suffer a little bit but how about government stepping up to the plate to actually you know facilitate that process as well as having decent laws that you know force developers for whatever purpose building houses or mining or whatever to bring benefits to nature as well as development so i'm not saying that's a win-win because you are you might cause some environmental destruction but at least if there's decent planning and laws about how development happens then yeah. um I, I do think that there's a lot of opportunities that we we just pass up in any situation where there is a trade-off, there is a good way and a bad way, or there's a spectrum of good and bad ways to address those trade-offs. You know, yeah. the absolute extreme would be you either do the one thing or the other thing. You know, either you you maintain the natural area or you just completely destroy it and and build something there. And then there's a whole spectrum of different possibilities in between, different ways of doing things. Not just not just how you spatially arrange them, but how you do them, like like you were talking about yeah. now. It is always a case of trade-offs, but there are better and worse ways of, of dealing with those uh, trade-offs. A lot of it is about vested interests and status quo. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is the way we've always done things. And also, you know, com large companies or companies who are who are making money and providing jobs, that's important, but they 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 often have undue influence even in a supposedly open democratic society mm -hmm. like we're supposed to have in the uk there's there's you know there's a lot of opaqueness in in planning and and also i think it's about conviction of politicians sometimes you do hear you genuinely hear politicians who are who who have a real conviction about about trying to change the way that things are done and making them more open and transparent and inclusive of nature and different sectors of society but, but i think often it's about just um you know politicians local and national not really having the conviction and the courage to actually stand up and say we're gonna we're going to introduce something quite radical well seemingly radical that that may maybe doesn't provide the amount of profit that otherwise would be derived from this but actually in the long term it provides um it will ensure that there's the amenities for people, whether it be roads access or the schools and the, the doctor's surgeries, et cetera, that are necessary, but also that we've thought about the sewage and the water supply and the impacts on the local environment and the runoff into the river and all these things. But so much of that just seems to go by the wayside. But but just having the conviction to say we're going to make sure that, you know, we we are holding developers to account. I guess that. Perhaps the two most important groups of people 
to communicate messages like this to are, I mean, one is the general public, you know, which is most people, and the other is policymakers. The voters. Yeah, the voters and the, the voted for, basically. And I, I sort of mentioned to you, when I'm doing a YouTube search, um, I very often see these, you know, you just see the, the thumbnail of the of the video of some bizarre looking, obviously photoshopped animal. And it's very often some giant sort of monster-like thing on a beach or two animals fighting each other or something, something absolutely ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And then, but the, yeah. most, the more ridiculous part is the number of views below it, you know, 20 million, 40 yeah, yeah. million views. Yeah. Relatively recently, you changed to being a science teacher and now you're teaching science in a, in a high school. So I, I, yeah. this is kind of a dual, let me get back to that in a, in a second, but I wanted to just ask, the kids that you interact with, are they the kind of people who click on these? Where I'm just kind of wondering, like, how do we get through to people if the if that kind of thing is so popular? I I, I think there is a temptation, and now we we can probably classify ourselves as you know middle aged men, um, pretty much. I guess <laughs> sort so. of approaching yeah. fifty. Mm. Um, in that, you know, I think there is. I, I constantly need to resist the tendency to do the whole in my day. You know, we weren't like that or we were more enlightened or, you know, we didn't behave like that. We were much better. So, yeah, I'm not going to I'm going to definitely resist that one. I think that young people are, for the large part, intelligent enough to realize that there is a difference between uh, the kind of it's just uh, that really is like, a you know, it's like, why do people look at, you know, watch a boxing match or why do people, you know, watch a, mm-hmm. anything? There's, there's a fascination with with sort of fighting and death and we all have it right so it's just some people to a greater or lesser extent and i think that young people are definitely able to separate what they see there and that kind of thing is purely just fascinating sort of entertainment sort of mm-hmm. almost sort of you know there's that horror aspect as well and and mm-hmm. um and, and separate that from you know what actually goes on in nature and maybe i'm not giving people enough credit now but i think that very often people click on those because they they do actually think it's genuine and you know there's a there's a spectrum of them you know some of them are just obviously to us you know as people who know a bit about the natural world to us are very obviously uh, nonsense and then there are some that you kind of have to uh, i'm actually quite tempted to click on them because i'm wondering if you know just to see if they're true or not because a, a few seconds would probably give it away but um, my suspicion has been that people are interested in that kind of thing. And I'm thinking about the sort of weird-looking creatures washed up on the beach now as well, you know, that people might be interested in that kind of thing because they think, oh, wow, a new, you know, that could be a new species and look at the size of that thing. You know, they actually think that it, it could be possible. Um, yeah, a new witch. So, yeah. yeah. I, I suppose it's like a Loch, a Loch Ness monster thing, you know, that mm-hmm. that is fascinating. I mean, if it if there was even a remote possibility that there could be a pleosaur living in, you know, in a in a deep lock in in Scotland, I'd be the first to be, you know, sort of get up there and have a look. It'd be absolutely fascinating, right. you know. But I think, uh, you know, what? But but I'd be, you know, sort of interested in what's the biological process that allowed this thing to to to, to you know to evolve or to keep to to, to survive or you know how how did that happen? I, you know, I think you do occasionally hear. I remember someone describing on a, a what was it on a beach up the up the west coast of, of South Africa, someone describing something that they had seen washed up on the beach and, and describing it to me like it had hair and it had, and, but they didn't know what it was. It was this mess of something. And I remember just really, really racking my brain, being absolutely fascinated about what this thing could have been, you know, that's come been washed up from yeah, the deep. Yeah. yeah, I suppose if people, are, people open it up, then it does show at least 
you know that there that there's an interest in in the natural world even True. if yeah. even if it's on only from from a sort of freak perspective yes yeah yeah just on that and sort of on the teaching thing sometimes you you can feel a little bit jaded about how uninterested kids can seem in in you know I'll, I'll sort of go off on a little anecdote about some beautiful plant or, or or insect or something or and you know you can see the kids go oh and I, I know I I've got about 30 seconds max before I've lost them yeah. but yet they constantly surprise you with you know what they're fascinated and interested in in terms of in terms of nature and I, I just had one the other day where there was a young lady in my class and she she has not sort of stood out as being someone who is really into biology right and yet at the end of the class i saw her looking at one of the posters which is of uh, on, on the lab wall which is of moths and butterflies and it's quite rare for a student to sort of just hang back and i said oh wh what are you what are you interested in there and she said oh i was just looking at the vapor of moths and then she started telling me all about vapor and moths she said oh no that's because i saw these moths over there and I could see their their eggs, they'd laid eggs around the windows. And I said, oh yeah, what, around here? She said, yeah, and I saw loads of them. So she, she'd gone away and researched all about it. And it turns out that the males disperse, find females, mate with them, the females lay eggs, hatch, and then the, the females only hang around on the food plant and, and don't fly. And it's just, you know, it's, and, and she was fascinated by this. And, you know, there's quite a few incidents like that. Someone will want a cutting of one of the plants, for example. I'm like, oh, my goodness, absolutely. Take <laughs> take the cuttings, you know. And um, and then they'll come back for another one. And then they'll tell me about how they've rooted and they've put them in. So, you know, and so, yes, young people are definitely interested in nature. And, you know, you've got kids of your own now, Andre, and I've, I've got uh, a couple of young ladies who are now, what, 11 and 10. And they are absolutely fascinated and and from from a from a very young age especially my youngest she would just sit and watch ants and this is no influence from me i really don't think she was too young so just like an absolute fascination that there's this sentient being you know marching around with yeah. six legs and, and 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 going with its little fellows going backwards and forwards and just sit there for hours watching it and then telling me about what, you know, when I come home from work, she'll get very excited to tell me about how the squirrels and the pigeons have been interacting with each other and, <laughs> you know, just complete fascination. And all the stories that we tell our children, well, so not all of them, but so many of them about animals, so many of the fairy stories involving animals, so many of the... The, the and all the new books, they're all about, okay, it's all anthropomorphizing animals, but it's it's all about, you know, elephants and tigers and lions and disney's empire is based on on that entire concept isn't it i mean all the yeah. characters and it's not it's not a coincidence it's because i mean if their audience wasn't okay you could say that they're manufacturing an interest but it's not there's a there's an inherent interest in the natural world and in, in in other beings and and it's definitely there with kids absolutely fascinated and and i think as they get older perhaps a bit more sort of cynical and more interested in in other things uh, but but certainly from a young age it's it's something that fascinates most kids i think also though i mean it's difficult to know without having sampled a, a big bunch of people but i think that 
at least in my life, there have been certain individuals, and one of them you mentioned, Jenny Day earlier on, um, who's who's my aunt. I yeah. might as well mention that. Yes. And I want to have her on the podcast yeah. soon as well, actually. Um, but I didn't say she was amazing just because she was your aunt. It was she. <laughs> I'll definitely leave that bit in, especially for her. But, um, <laughs> but she was definitely a huge influence on me, and and I think that part of the um, maybe more than anybody else, actually, my parents were very encouraging of my career towards conservation they were nature lovers themselves but you know they didn't work in the field whereas jenny has been a, a professor all her life but i think one important thing is it was always kind of a case of providing little bits of detail uh, that i'd sort of grab onto and then want to know more well yeah i mean the thing is what what struck me about being a teacher is that you know there's enthusiasm and obviously subject knowledge is is absolutely critical but there are so many other skills you need in order to be a good teacher many many of which i fail on but enthusiasm i know is not one i'm lacking but um yeah it's it's an amazing career and really one of the main reasons why i chose it as well as some practical things like um being with the kids during the summer holidays working locally rather than having to commute long distances etc mm -hmm. so um there were definitely sort of family considerations and practical considerations for the career move mm -hmm. but just to have a a stable job in the subject that i love is is a huge privilege and to be able to share my passion and interest for all the sciences and not just biology but in fact i see little distinction between the sciences really they all blend yeah. into one another yeah, that, yeah. you know physics obviously is the mother science and then i i see sort of increasingly i see biology as just like this crazy wacky branch of organic chemistry yeah you know it's just this it's like organic organic chemistry gone mad and uh, and that that so so in a way biology is a kind of niche subject in a way but obviously the fact that we happen to be living biological organisms is is you know it makes it particularly of particular relevance to us but yeah just you know and then to see students who i've taught choose biology going from GCSE to A level, it might be in spite of me, but it, it, at least I haven't put them off. And so, and then hopefully, you know, some of those going on and you see some of the young people, they're far cleverer than I'll ever be, you know, because when I think of where I was at their, their age mm -hmm. and, and just the sharpness of their minds, mm -hmm. um, and, and and where they you know they're definitely future professors and right, you know right. if, if they could even look back and think oh i remember when dr Lowe told me about this you know anecdote and that had even a tiny you know contribution to their inspiration to go and study what they're going to go you know to go on to study <laughs> and and to also have a deeper appreciation for the natural world as well i also run a stem club which is, stands for science, technology, engineering, and maths. And uh -huh. so every Thursday, I've got the kids normally with nets dipping in ponds and then looking at amoeba and paramecium ah, and what okay, have you on nice. and going around catching insects and then sort of classifying them and, and, and uh, talking about their relationship and what they do. And, and then, um, yeah, and then and there's, so, no, there's no, no curriculum to, to stick to there either, right? You can kind of do whatever no, you please. No, absolutely. Mm. I mean, obviously, it's always great if you can making links with the curriculum and normally there normally is so mm -hmm. um, there's normally direct links or or at least you know um, of indirect links with the curriculum and that's so that's supporting their their learning 
within the curriculum. But but yeah, definitely, I'm not beholden to anything. I mean, the other day we were firing Nerf guns across the sports hall, you know, by putting the Nerf guns at different angles and seeing the distance they travel and all that. So, you know, sort of very basic ballistics and kids mm-hmm. love that stuff. I mean, I remember anything that involved firing anything, I was, I was immediately <laughs> <laughs> interested. So really, I just have to think back to what was I interested as a kid? Mm-hmm. And then I kind of do that with them. And it's almost always, you know, it ticks the boxes. Yeah. Something to do with flying, something to do with ballistics, anything yeah. to do with, with creepy crawlies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, yeah. that, that nicely brings me to the one other question I wanted to, to ask, you know, talking about getting the, the kids out into nature and stuff. Mm. Do you think that people can appreciate and benefit from nature without spending much time in it? Or do you think that, you know, we were talking about influencing young people's uh, views of nature and also just the, the kind of natural inclination to that. But do you think that it's also it makes a difference if especially young people can spend time in nature and that their minds are kind of changed by that a little bit based on your experiences? I don't know if you know enough about the kids' background to be able to to say that, but uh, otherwise just your your opinions on that would be interesting. It's difficult to comment in terms of the kids who are in front of me at school. What, what I do know is that whenever we do something like grab the nets and go and look in the pond or sweep around in just in some nettles or in a in a you know some hawthorn bushes or something and you know you catch like we caught some bush crickets and uh, even just catching ladybirds and and you know putting them in a pot for a few minutes while they look at them and and just the sheer fascination and exuberance of because it's difficult to do that unless you've actually got a net. And I I would hazard a guess that most kids probably don't have a net. So just having that simple piece of equipment and going out there and actually doing it is is, um, clearly of benefit to them. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it really deepens their interest in what's out there. Just in, you know, then it's not just a patch of nettles that can sting you. It's full of life. Mm -hmm. You know, and this looking at the mud at the bottom of the pond, it's full of life. Everywhere you look, it's full of life. Mm -hmm. And um, I I do think that getting out there and experiencing that can really help. Now, the thing is, you know, if you're growing up in an inner city, You, you're not going to have that much access to to nature. And I, I think that in terms of the benefits of nature, the easiest way to talk about it is from a personal perspective. And as you said, I, certainly since having kids, I, I get out into nature less. That's simply because mm. I would have been outside every day in the past, if you remember. Yeah. And But now, you know, it is my solace. It's my church. It's my it's my you know to get out on the bike or to go for a run or a walk you know that is what keeps me sane amongst you know all the other competing um uh, responsibilities and and what have you in 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 life and talking about you know there's been a lot of talk about mental health during uh, uh, during the pandemic yeah. yeah and it's definitely been just getting out for a walk getting outside and um, has been the panacea almost for everything but i realize that's me and that's my that's my n of one um but certainly with my family as well sometimes it's like pulling teeth just trying to get the kids outside but it's almost guaranteed that once we're out everything falls away and everything is fine and we walk along we might be bickering and arguing and we get outside and everyone's holding hands after five minutes and all is fine with the world but in terms of a more sort of objective perspective it's difficult to know i mean there are loads of studies 
that show the benefits of nature to, mm -hmm. to people. And I, sorry, I don't have those to hand, but there are enough. There are certainly lots out there that show that being outside benefits our, our mental health. Mm -hmm. I'm personally convinced, mm -hmm. although, you know, there's a lot of bad things said about modern technology of uh, social media and what have you. And I do think that, you know, certainly as a teacher, you see it. Young people are spending a huge amount of their time on. Sometimes they spend as much time on social media as they do asleep mm -hmm. um, or at school. And that will take away from time to do other things. For mm -hmm. example, going walking and doing physical exercise. But um, but equally, I think that we have to acknowledge the benefits of that as well. And what's this all about, this being in nature and this need for us to talk to each other and communicate with each other? And it's all about connection. And I think it really is about seeing our place and our connection with people around us and also in the our connection with the wider world. And I think that really to have both of those things to be connected with people and to be connected with nature it's almost kind of what makes us human okay if you made it this far i trust that some of steve's enthusiasm has rubbed off on you and you're feeling all inspired to go and conserve the environment next time i'll be talking to Sharachandra lele a senior fellow at the Ashoka Trust for Research in Ecology and the Environment in Bangalore. We'll be talking about ecosystem services and related concepts. Sharad has some interesting views on how the concept could be improved. We also talk about the ethics of our relationship with nature and why we conserve it. I find his views really insightful and unusual, and I expect that you will too. I hope to see you then. <laughs>